Hey, Catherine, huge thank you for coming on. Sure, sure. I hope this works. Yeah, you are. You are. Your audio is excellent. It's very, I can listen to it. It's, It's great. Yes. Yay. Can you tell the viewers a little bit about you, your background and how you got to this point in your life whereby you're writing books? Sure, definitely. Um, yes, and I'm here in my my mellow living room, not my office that has all that FBI paraphernalia in it. So, um, so I actually am a product of Detroit, Michigan. I was raised up in the Midwest and in the upper Midwest in the States. And, you know, it's very mellow up there. Everybody's super nice to each other. So I worked as a journalist, a news journalist for a little while, print, and then went, moved into Chicago and found out that most of the lawyers who I was dealing with as a journalist were lying to me. So I went to law school, which a lot of journalists do. And then I suddenly ended up prosecuting. So I was in the prosecutor's office in Chicago, which is a huge court system, like 800 attorneys. And I was working there and my cousin was an FBI agent and kind of talked me into joining the FBI. I wasn't super keen on it because I didn't, he was an agent and I didn't think, I was like, oh, I don't really care about that. I'm a prosecutor. Um, But then as it turned out, um, the FBI took me surprisingly, and I ended up uh, spending 20 years there. Um, And the first 15, really, I was working national security matters, which sounds like a lot of big words, but basically it means I was working espionage cases and counterterrorism cases and domestic terrorism and those kinds of things. And then um, Sandy Hook happened, the Sandy Hook shooting, which is an elementary school shooting in Connecticut in the Northeast of the United States. And when that occurred, there were uh, so many babies, 20 children who were like first graders killed uh, and six adults Mm -hmm. killed, six women who worked in the schools. And the FBI's, uh, you know, I was in working in FBI headquarters at the time and they came to me and said, hi, we're volunteering you that you're going to be doing this now. And so, uh, which happens a lot in the organization. So I ended up going over to join then Vice President Biden's team uh, that was looking for solutions with a lot of other federal agencies that are all under the executive branch, the president's uh, executive branch. So Health and Human Services and Department of Homeland Security and Department of Education and lots of what we call three-letter organizations. And and really, I, I was the only law enforcement guy. So, so I really took on that role and um, kind of embraced it and kind of, e- even though I, I seem like this, I'm, I'm really an agent in my head. And so, you know, a gun toting, you know, get out to the crime scene kind of person. And it made me so angry that those children were killed. I was like, well, we gotta, we gotta find a way to stop the killing. So that's my back. Thank you for that. And I've got so many questions. How realistic is Silence of the Lambs with Clarice Starling going in (laughs) to Hannibal Lecter? (laughs) The opening scene, which was filmed in our gun cleaning room and the path that she takes as she takes off to run in the beginning that has the tree with all those little signs on it. Those are true. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> so it ends there then. Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm sure there were, I'm sure there are some other things that of course we would want to take an untrained, unskilled, no behavioral expertise 
rookie who hasn't even gotten out of the academy and fly them all over the United States <laughs> to, to face a mastermind. I think it's absolutely plausible. <laughs> so plausible. I would be writing that in a movie right now. <laughs> all right, going back chronologically, let, let, let's unpack some of the stuff from the beginning. So as a prosecutor in Chicago, then, what years was that? Oh my gosh, I don't know, a long time ago. Uh, uh, 90 to something. 97 when I joined the FBI. Okay, because so I, I, I lived in America from 91 till about 2007. And I, I saw there's a, a massive gang problem. All these, you know, mm -hmm. Bloods, Crips, Gangster Disciples, right. Latin Kings, all this stuff. What was the gang culture like in Chicago during those years when you were a prosecutor? Oh, it was, yeah, it was bad. And I was actually in charge of all of the felony drug cases. So the attorneys who were working those kind of cases, I was working the felony drug appeals. So whatever the cases were, whether it was, you know, a hit of something, you know, a little bit of crack, a little bit of rock, a little bit of whatever, or, you know, kilos, all of those cases kind of came through my office. And a lot of, I mean, those were really all gang related cases. I mean, very rarely do you have somebody who's dealing drugs who isn't affiliated with somebody. Yeah. And did you see uh, violence escalate from the drug gangs over the years? It do It just does. I mean, gangs and, the, you know, the scariest part about right now is that um, uh, the, the uh, people who are carrying guns are younger and younger and younger, and the people willing to use them are younger and younger. It, you know, when I was prosecuting, we would, there was kind of this view that, oh, if it's a minor you know, you're not going to prosecute them for in the in, for a felony. And now, you know, we're charging 15 year olds with triple murders. And, you know, that just didn't happen before. But now the 15 year olds are carrying the guns. Exactly the same in the UK and the murder, the knife crime and the weapons in London now is at yeah. all time high. Oh. Um, but yeah, we could we could talk that, uh, that a lot about that. But let's let's move on to other things. We've got limited time. So Hajit Singh has sent a question on Facebook. What's the most shocking or bizarre unexplained thing Catherine's ever seen in her career? Great question. Oh my gosh, the most shocking. Um, well, let me work backwards and think about that while I give you this uh, filler answer that the coolest thing I ever worked on <laughs> is uh, an 88 year old woman who was kidnapped from her home, which was really pretty bizarre because she was kidnapped by these two Jim Oaks who um, stole her in the middle of the night. And then for a couple of days, her family was like, yeah, you know, well, she, she might not be gone. Maybe she just like drove away. And the next day they found her car in a snow covered field, half a mile down from the house. And the family still said, we're not going to call the police. I'm like, what, what, what? And eventually about, Four days into it, it's eighty-eight-year-old woman. Four days into it, I finally got a call at the FBI from a local police officer who said he was awesome. His name is he's the he's the guy in charge, and his name is Skippy. So I got a call from Skippy. Skippy said, "Hey, these are my facts. Um, this happened. This woman is not apparently around." Her husband is almost blind and sleeps in a different bedroom. So he heard the door open in the middle of the night. We found the phone lines to the house cut. 
um, they took the car and brought the car back to the house. But in the process, they like completely ruined the crime scene, trampled all around it, messed up the car, couldn't get fingerprints, couldn't try to get anything. And the family won't really want to, doesn't want to talk to us because they don't think that we can do it. We, we, they were a sheriff's office and they don't trust us. And I said, well, wow. what? I mean, to me, that was very weird. So yeah. to me, that was the strangest that four days into it, I can tell you two days later, we found her alive. Two days oh, later. Oh, did you? Where yeah, was she? Two days later. She was in a motorcycle trailer parked in the back of a lot of somebody's house out in the farm country and um, in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. And it was 25 degrees outside. Shocking. She was alive. She was chained to the floor. And he was feeding her one McDonald's hamburger every day, oh my which God. he said she she held on to it to keep her fingers warm first. And then once it got cold, she ate it. Bloody so hell. do you know what, though? Here's the best part. You know what she said when when we found her? I was on the radio when our SWAT guys broke the lock off. She said, she said, what took you guys so long? <laughs> <laughs> would you say that she was lucky to be alive because don't over so many days is, is the chance diminished that right yes in the time in the united states there were what we that that's what we call a, a true kidnapping as opposed to like a, a a parent who takes a child you know who doesn't have custody of it at the time there were about six five or six true true kidnappings in the united states all of the united states annually that's it and almost all of those uh, kidnap. I don't want to. I don't want to make people sad, but you know, kidnappers k usually kill their victim in the first 24 hours. So we wow. were shocked that she was alive. Shocked. Five days later. Five wow. days later. So that was a so, very cool case, but bizarre too. Because of so the we family. Had, so we had a guy on the channel, uh, Phil Chalmers, who arranged for us to interview a serial killer and a school shooter, and the remorselessness of what the school shooter versus the gloating of the serial killer was astounding and the school shooter the, the the viewers the comments really sympathized with him because as a kid the kids had set fire to him he was getting the hell bullied out of him and all of these horrific things had happened to him and he just snapped and he snapped to the point whereby he wanted to kill the whole school. He took it out on the whole school. And he showed up and he just he just shot indiscriminately, which is a horrific thing, which he's he, you know he took responsibility for and he's he's regretted it for the rest of his life. And actually, one of the kids uh, from the school, he started writing to her. One of his classmates, a female, and they're married now, and he's wow. he's going to be yeah he's going to be getting out and hopefully living a normal life. But looking at the root causes of these things, then I was very curious. As to your perspective, what is it? What are the root causes of school shootings? Yeah, you know, that's a great comparison because somebody who's a serial killer, he's a narcissist and he has a, you know, he has a lot of psychosis issues that really aren't the same situation as a school shooter. That's why when, when you mentioned in the beginning that I was the active shooter, uh, the person who created the FBI's active shooter program and ran it, well, active shooter is really these, what we think of as spontaneous. They're planned events, but like a school shooter, it's a planned event. A serial killer is just a murderer. A school shooting is somebody who uh, plans because they have these 
perceived or real grievances and they build it up until they decide they have to do something about it, which is probably exactly what you heard with that young man. And you didn't say man, but I'm betting it is because 98, 99% of them are men. Um, and the school shooters often, um, especially uh, here, all of secondary school, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, all of those shooters generally come from their own school. So they're, they're, they're feeling the stress in their own school and they go back to their school or their home and they go back to school and shoot completely different. That's part of the book that I wrote. There are um, three chapters just on who are these people and why, and how can you find them? That's really, you know, why I wrote the book is like you, you civilian, you have to find these because police never find them. But you know, uh, the FBI research showed 92% of the time a schoolmate has specific information that was leaked to them by the shooter, 92% of the time and doesn't report it. So almost every time doesn't report it. So, so sad. Um, and so they're really people who are struggling way before they think about doing this. Very few of them are just um, saying, hey, I wanna grow up to be a, a murderer. I wanna grow up to be a, a mass murderer and, you know, and, and, and shoot up my school. They, don't, they never start out that way, but they end up that way. How many of them end up shooting themselves? About 30% for school shooters, about 30%. It's a little lower. You know, most of the shootings like this in the United States are actually in places of business, half of them. And only in, in the um, schools is about 25, 20 to 25% of these types of shootings, these mass shootings occur in schools. It's just that they're so horrific. The one that we just had down in Texas, 19 children killed uh, and two adults. Uh, just like you just shake your head. There's like nothing else you can do. Like if you're listening to this, instead of watching it, if you're not shaking your head when I say 19 children killed, children killed you just gotta shake your head. Do it even if you don't, do it even if you don't want to. Even, um, you, you mentioned earlier then that there were, there were some minority of female school shooters. Is it the same backstories for the females or are the different things that trigger the females? You know, in the FBI's research, um, which I started, you know, back in 2000, we went back to 2000 and they continued it since I left the FBI. So 22 years of research, there's been 13 female shooters out of several hundred right? Wow. Out of, out of 300 situations, 300 plus shootings, 13 women. So, and sometimes those women are coming with a spouse or a boyfriend, uh, but where the women are the shooters are in places of business. Those handful of women, they're going back to their office because they've been wronged. Be nice to the women you work with. Wow. Are there certain states, I mean, for example, in California, we see a lot more serial killer activity. Are there certain states that have more uh, shooter activity? Now, we're, we're a uh, equal opportunity provider here. The worst states in the United States for these types of mass shootings, California, Texas, Florida, are two our three largest states in terms of population. So it kind of tracks on it. But almost every state in the union has had one of these shootings. So is that is California just has so many by virtue of its size than its population size? Right, right. And there are equally as many in Texas as California. And Texas is just a huge state too. It's like, so what, I don't know, huge. What can be done to prevent shooters? 
Well, you know what I, what I want people to do is uh, pay attention to the people around them. None of these, one of the differences about these kinds of shootings is, you know, a person who's a narcissist, a person who's got psychosis that makes them a serial killer, you know, they are hiding things over time and, and planning. These kinds of mass shooters, they plan too, um, but it's a trajectory. First, they get angry. They have some grievance. They hate, you know, the guy who parks in their parking spot at work or, you know, that bullying, like you said, at school, but not all the shooters are bullied, but which, which I think is a common myth. Um, and not all the shooters are young, average age of a shooter, like this is 35, not 20. Um, but the people who do this uh, are people who they're more brittle and they just can't seem to uh, accept the things around them. That's part of it. They're, they're oftentimes abused, uh, you know, they get abused, uh, they get bullied, uh, they turn on and they turn and do that to them, to, to other people. So you'll see that they're kind of bullies. Um, and so when people say, oh, well, he was bullied, he also might bully, right? And the guys who do this often are um, people who they start to, here's what you watch for. Here's what you need to watch for. They change their appearance, right? They start wearing different clothes. They shave their hair a different way. They maybe stop taking their medication. They start talking about guns. They start talking about other shooters. They start admiring them, posting pictures of themselves with a gun, big warning sign. Um, posting pictures of themselves pointing the gun, big warning signs. And you know, it's definitely uh, because so many also wanna commit suicide, look for the signs that you would for suicide because those are the same things. If somebody in your house wants to commit suicide, you know, wouldn't you reach out to, the, to, to, to get them some help? And here's, if you don't wanna reach out, let me tell you this. Of these shooters in our research um, at the FBI, 10% of them killed a family member before they did their shooting, 10%. So you reach out, you could be saving your own family. Wow. The guy down in Uvalde, Texas, shot his grandmother in the face before he left for the school. You touched on nice something guy. interesting there, then you mentioned about um, stopping medication. So is there a correlation between people coming off psychotropic medication and doing these shootings? Not really. I mean, that national, there, there's, first of all, the number of, the amount of violence that has to do with gun violence in the United States, even though it seems like this is horrific, there were 61, the FBI just recently released this information. There were 61 of these types of shootings last year, which means more than one a week, right? When I was working on it uh, at the FBI, when I started my initial research, it took eight years to get to 61 shootings. Now we're there in one year. But those shootings are still um, not really related or connected to medication, mental health, uh, somebody not get, it's more like more likely that somebody's maybe not getting the mental health they need. So they're not dealing with the anxiety and the stress. It's not really a, not to say that mental health isn't an issue. It is an issue, but it's not the issue. Bigger so, issues are like financial problems and problems with relationships. So you've got the tension building and then the brittle mind and then the brittle mind snaps and bam. Okay, we're mm -hmm. going to take a few a few questions from the uh, the viewers again. So Easy E has asked, Catherine, are you aware of the FBI's case on the Founders Movement? 
You mean their current case on the founders movement? Their historical not, case? I think that's a reference to the historical case. I am not detailed in it enough to talk about it. I'm sorry. Okay. And Harjit has asked about the frequency of spree stabbers. Do you have spree stabbers in America? We do. You know what? I guess that we're equal opportunity here. We have very few spree stabbers because we have so many guns. Right. We have 300 plus million people in the United States and we have about 400 million guns. So we do not have that. It's a very rare occurrence when we have that in the United States. And, and it, it, it's like a one and done. So do you think the accessibility of guns versus a country like the UK where there's more stabbings, but the guns are increasing now, do you think the accessibility of guns in America um, correlates with the more murders that can be created by these shooters? It does. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't deny that we have a lot of guns here and the rest of the world doesn't. Um, we're the countries that have, if you look at the international uh, research on it, which we talk about in our podcast, um, we talked to Adam Lance uh, and, um, and he's got great information on just that. He did research to say, hey, is the violence, if it's not guns, the same in, in the rest of the world? You have violence with knives there in the UK, but you don't have anywhere near the volume of people killed because you can do a lot more damage with a high powered weapon. You just can't. Yeah. Makes sense. So just let me tell the viewers then, if you've got a question for Catherine, put that in the chat, wherever you are, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, it, it is all in front of us. And we're going to keep going on these questions revolving around shooters. And what about serial killer cases? Then have you, have you been assigned to any of those? Uh, serial killer cases are are solely the purview of our behavioral team, and I work with the behavioral team, but I haven't, but I'm not, I wasn't on the behavioral team. Um, so I know that serial killers are like the coolest thing to talk about, and uh, the FBI did some great serial killer research way back when nobody was doing it to talk about what kind of things the serial killers are. So look on the FBI website if you want to see their research, if you haven't seen it, um, because very rarely do people tap that anymore. And I think it is kind of cool where they went out and looked at uh, serial killers and interviewed them. And they're in the process right now of interviewing these shooters for research that'll be out pretty soon, um, but not probably in the next few weeks. Serial killers are, I worked in Milwaukee um, when Jeffrey Dahmer was there. And I think Jeffrey Dahmer was, um, you know, he not only killed his victims, he kept pieces of them in the refrigerator and ate some of them. And he was a little strange, to say the least. And in fact, you know, uh, we ended up, get, his house was raised, not surprisingly, because he was, you know, they, the neighborhood was like, we can't have this house here anymore because he had done all his acts there. And I don't know if serial killers are, are following me because now that I think about it, John Wayne Gacy, I was in Chicago working when John Wayne Gacy was there. And so, which goes way back. And he's the guy who had the... Um, the we were working that case when he had the kids buried in his basement and he he would meet them by playing a clown at neighborhood parties and things it's very very creepy yeah there's a thing on netflix about him now uh, with dharma then he was assassinated in prison wasn't he mm -hmm. uh, yeah very sad so dana diamond has asked whether you have ever worked with clairvoyants or psychics during your time at the FBI? You know, um, I've worked with um, 
with people who sense, right, some aspect of that, when we are looking for a missing person, people reach out and say, hey, I can sense her here. And, you know, even the FBI is not going to turn away anybody who can. You have a dog you think can track somebody even though they left in a car? Bring them on. We'll try them. So I, when we had uh, one particular particular person, a younger person kidnapped um, up in Wisconsin, we did just that. We worked with a woman who said she could sense whether the child was still alive and the child was there. And, um, and we worked with another woman who had a dog literally who, who she said could track through the state even via car. Now that was a little less successful, but I will say that the child who, the child that the woman was sensing where the child was and whether the child was still alive, she was pretty spot on. Banana Man has asked whether you've ever been to a body farm. I don't even know what a body farm is. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah, you're actually touching on my next book. I'm working on another book that is about body farms. So uh, body farm people. Body farm is a, um, there's a, there's a handful of them. And anybody who's working forensics, you, if you're going to dig up something and it's body parts or bodies, you got to get experience at the body farm. So there's a couple of those in the United States, and actually there's one that's a frozen body farm up in up in the Michigan, which is kind of creepy. Um, and they take bodies and body parts, bury them, and then the and then the uh, and then the forensic people learn how to dig them up and identify what they are. So that's what a body farm is. Um, so yes, I have, um, and there and I have some. I actually have a very good friend who teaches. Uh, at the body farm, two two people who who not actually teach. They're they're so good at it. They teach how to dig up bodies. It's kind of creepy. Oh my goodness! So early on in your career, then, do you have to attend autopsies and stuff like that? Yeah, it's just kind of part of the stuff. You you have to just know what the whole business is. A lot of times, when you're the agent, you're a lot of times you're the only one out there. And if that means you've got to stop somebody from doing something, if that means you got to pick up a body part and transport it, you do. I mean, the, there are things like the one of the hijackers on 9-11, uh, whose body, uh, she was on a plane that hit in New York. Her hands with the handcuffs still on them from the hijackers were severed, but still intact. And they were put in a cooler and driven from New York down to Quantico to our forensics people. Um, so creepy. We hand transport stuff to make sure it gets there. So I've done my share of hand transporting, but not hands. How do you internalize that, Catherine? It must have an effect on the psyche. Yeah, I think I try not to look. Uh, I'm, I, I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of friends who I used to manage the uh, photographers at our Washington DC field office who would go out and shoot the pictures at, you know, all these crime scenes and We'd go out there and I'd, you know, and I'd kind of say, yeah, you guys go right over there, go right in there. I just, I try not to look at the, they were all like, I like to shoot the, we, we had a plane, for instance, we had a train, for instance, two trains who crashed and the trains, um, when they crashed together, they turned the sides of the train into like steel knives that just went through the cars and cut the bodies apart and one of my photographers was saying, yeah, I really like to do like shoot the blood on the, on the windows. I'm like, you're, you're sick, wow. <laughs> you're sick. But wow. she, I just, I kind of try not to spend too much time staring at the crime scene. It's just, you can't, you can't unsee it. That's what I do. I, you can't unsee it. 
And I try not to relate it to my family and my friends. So on a lighter note then, Wetworks asked whether you painted the picture in the background. Do you do art therapy? I wish I did. My sister painted that. Isn't it gorgeous? Yeah. <laughs> it's gorgeous, isn't it? It, 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 yeah. it sets a lovely energy for that room, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, yes, it's a, it's a beautiful, she's an incredibly talented artist in Michigan, unsung, no, not famous, uh, teaches, teaches watercolor and oils and super talented and should, should sell everything and should be famous, but she isn't because she isn't, she, oh. she doesn't want to be, I guess, or something. But thank you oh. for asking. And I will tell Christine, Christine <laughs> Fleischman, I will tell her that you complimented it. Definitely. Christine Waugh Fleischman. And does Christine have a website people can check her art out at? Yeah, let me spell her last name. It's W-A-U-G-H hyphen F-L-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N, Fleischman, two N's. Christine, just a good Irish Catholic name. Christine, okay. like mine. I'm a good Irish Catholic kid named Schweit. <laughs> How does that happen? That'll teach me to get married. <laughs> Short order cookers asked, do the FBI still use remote viewers? Uh, yeah, we use a lot of things. <laughs> we have a lot of toys. That was that was the most fun for me. Uh, when I was in FBI headquarters, I was assigned to the division that we call the toys division. And they have incredible toys. They work with the lab and they have things that, I mean, I remember seeing things, especially because I worked espionage cases. I remember seeing things that you know about now, but I was seeing them 20 years ago. It was so cool. So fun toys. In the air, on the ground, under the ground. Ibifa Groove has asked, what's Catherine's view on the 1978 Jonestown incident in Guyana? Crazy person. And a lot of naive people. Not a lot of a lot of people who are willing to follow somebody who had a simple answer, and and uh, and I think probably we in the country here I think we probably learned some mistakes. We we learned from the mistakes about allowing people to join cults and even our you know we had uh, we had a congressman killed uh, on the ground out there I think and uh, it's just a terrible terrible situation. Not and other people besides a congressman, but that shows how we were trying to work something out instead of just recognizing that we were dealing with a very unstable person and the and his cult following got worse and worse and worse. Plus, everybody says that's the Kool-Aid situation, but that was not Kool-Aid. The Kool-Aid company says that please point out it's not Kool-Aid they were drinking. They were drinking whatever that other stuff is that's orange and you mix it up. Okay, so this might, we run out of time. This might be the last question. So um, Justin wants to know about killers using animals to get rid of corpses, for example, hogs. Yes, that happens sometimes. It's gross and disgusting. It doesn't happen as much as you might think, but boy, when it does, it is a uh, disgusting, disgusting situation. And also, really, there's only so many places where you can just drump a body with wild hogs, right? Maybe Florida but not a lot of places in the rest of this country, <laughs> maybe Texas. <laughs> so I, I love I your questions. Oh my gosh, you have crazy, crazy listeners and viewers with great it's, questions. I never get to answer. <laughs> it's a variety, isn't it? Uh, perhaps this will be the last question. So I, I do talks in schools, I do drugs education. So if you were doing talks in schools, Catherine, 
what what would you say to the kids to try and identify or prevent shooters? I would say I would say first of all, all the people who you are sitting around are the ones who are can can turn into a school shooter if we don't take care of them. So you have to take care of people just like your parents take care of you. And if your parents don't take care of you, then find somebody to take care of you. And don't ever think that anybody wants to be a school shooter. But I will tell you this, in training in the United States, we train kids kids to uh, run, hide, fight. at you Run, hide, tell, I think is what it is in the UK. And in the United States, run, hide, fight, they really only teach the hide part in schools, but they need to teach the run. Children can't be killed if they're alive. If they're running, if they're running away, they'll stay alive. So they you just run, 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 run. If you think you're in danger, run away. Nobody cares how stupid you look, run away. Would you like to tell the viewers where they can find you, follow you and get your book? I would, if you don't mind. Look, I have one. Here's my book. Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. But I will say that more important than uh, anything, if you can spell my name, Catherine Schweit, see it's on the book. Um, it, I, my website is katherineschweit.com, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E. S-C-H-W-E-I-T, KatherineSchweit.com. And it has all kinds of stuff, resources, everything. Thanks so much. You guys are the best. Oh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Really appreciate it. And you have a great rest of your day and uh, enjoy the art. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm going to call Christine right now and tell her how she's famous now. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you, Catherine. Cheers. Cheers. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.